Welcome to Big Business Briefs with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. We've actually just been having a conversation about bras. So there's an underwear thing going on. Yeah. And that's not what we're talking about this week. I was, I was just panicking then. <laughs> there's an underwear theme. I, I haven't researched underwear, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about bras and knickers if you want to. Yeah. Big business briefs. briefs. Yes, no. Uh, this week, the topic we're supposed to be talking about, yeah. at least the one I've prepared for, is imposter syndrome. Um, have you ever doubted your abilities or been in fear of being found out for oh, being a fraud, Heather? God, yes. Like, every day. Yeah. Every single day. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody today. I was doing some work with a young man. And I was marvelling at his supreme confidence. Where does that come from? It's like, what? I'm, you know, I'm 54. I, I don't have that. I, don't. I think it. There are certain. I find now there are certain occasions when it creeps in. Yeah. I don't have it like permanent, a permanent yeah. state of um, thinking. Yes, yeah, so literally, I'm going to get found out. What about you? Yeah, I, I think. Um, I used to have it quite badly. And then once you put a name on it, or once you realise that other people have it, then it becomes a manageable sort of thing, doesn't it? So I know I still have it now, I know, but I can talk myself round and go, well, if you're not going to do with this job, then who is? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it was really the understanding and realising that other people have the same problem. And that's the the subject of a TED talk that I watched in prep for this. So it's a TEDx talk. I don't know if you've seen it, Heather. It's by Mike Cannon Brooks. And and I wasn't sure about the title, how you can use imposter syndrome to your benefit. Um, Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Interesting. But um, one of the things that I really took from this, it was nice. It was, it's an engaging talk. He's a very relatable guy. Uh, Very, very, um, experienced in business successful in business and he says he still has imposter syndrome but he said what made it manageable for him is exactly what I've just said is the fact that he found out there was a name for it and that other people experience it interestingly he said that um, one of the examples he gave in the talk was when he really discovered that other people have this. He'd won an award, um, an entrepreneurship award in Australia, and he won the under-40s category. And then, as if by magic, on that same event, he won the overall category um, for their region. I said, oh, wow, wow, okay. And then he went to the national uh, or even international, yeah, it was an international final, and he he met... um, the winner from Portugal, Uh, and this gentleman was 65 years old, been running a business for 40 years, and he was having a conversation with this guy, and he just said, you know, I I really feel out of my depth here, don't feel like I should be here, even though he'd just won the the Australian um, award for best entrepreneur, or or, sorry, I can't remember the exact title, Um, but this 65-year-old winner from Portugal said, yeah, I feel the same. And he said, I I can bet that every winner in this room feels the same. And he said that was a light bulb moment for him because he he realised that everybody has it and it doesn't go away with success. Yeah, and do you think that's what keeps us humble? I think if people don't have that imposter syndrome... Mm. Are you arrogant? Then they become, yeah, possibly... Or complacent. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I do wonder that. Um, 
I still, like I said, I still have imposter syndrome, but I don't, I don't let it hold me back quite so much. I think there are occasions when I will do, but I'm able to to see it for what it is now. One of the biggest differences I noticed is that when I started coaching people, I would hear myself coaching them through conversations that I play inside my head sometimes. So you know, so when you when so when I'm sat in front, if I were coaching you and I see you as you know very capable and competent and you know at the top of your yeah. game or whatever it might be, and then you start to talk about imposter syndrome, it's a bit like a mirror in some respects because you go, "Crikey, yeah, okay." And would you have said that you had imposter syndrome at that? But would you have revealed that as a coach or a mentor? I would share that I've I understand, yeah. but then ask the questions. Yeah, you know, what makes so you not make that. it all about you. No, no, no. But I think that's the powerful thing, is it? When you actually realise that there are successful people, there are, there are people out there that are are looked upon as, you know, you're a coach or a communications trainer. People might not think, well, you obviously, you're confident, yes. aren't you? Yeah. So actually to reveal that side of you can be quite empowering for other people as well. So I think that's really positive. Yeah, and I think what's, in, what's really interesting is the TED Talk that you were talking about... Um, those are men talking, and I think there was a time when imposter syndrome was owned by women. Well, yeah, I was reading, well, one of the other TED Talks I watched, um, but then I read the transcript because I watched it, but it didn't all stick. So, so then you <laughs> well, read it. I don't know what that was about. Yeah, so then I read the transcript. So this is another uh, TED Ed Talk. Um, this is by Elizabeth Cox, um, and it, it's one of those animated ones. So it's a sort of educational mm-hmm. uh, with animation um, by Sharon Coleman, I should add. Uh, and she says that actually the first study into um, imposter syndrome was looking at imposterism in female college students. So it was, and maybe it was women that admitted to it first. And now men, it's been normalised yeah. for men, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe the... Um, society and culture wasn't ready for men to admit that they they weren't alphas and and totally you know in control uh, of you know their confidence levels so um yeah it was first um studied by psychologist called pauline rose clance mm-hmm. and she called it an unwarranted sense of insecurity that pretty much sums it That's up about right she'd noticed it as a th- um therapist to undergraduates um, and uh, people in this college, so hence why she did the study in female college students. Um, and and it was interesting because she said to call it a syndrome, so imposter syndrome, she said plays down how universal it is. And she also points out that it's not a disease or an abnormality. It isn't necessarily tied to depression, anxiety or self-esteem. It just it exists on its own. So this unwarranted sense of insecurity. She looked at um, six different dimensions and says that if two of these exist, then it's probably an indicator right, okay. of imposter syndrome. So, um, so there's the imposter cycle, you know, where you, you are literally just going round and round in, in your head. The need to be special or the best. Uh, characteristics of Superman or Superwoman. You know, with that feeling where you, yeah. you know, you've got to be absolute fear of failure, mm-hmm. um, denial of ability, and discounting praise. How many times mm-hmm. have we done that? You know, when somebody has said to you, "Well done," 
Oh, it's nothing. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. So I was only just doing my job. or And if ever I hear anybody saying that nowadays, I always say, whoa, hang on a minute. Not just doing your job, doing your job well. Yeah. So acknowledge that, pat yourself on the back. Um, I'm feeling fear and guilt about success. Some people, you know, when they are hugely successful, uh, c- can feel that that a bit embarrassed about it. Yeah. I, I remember speaking to a guy once and he, you know, he very successful um, and was looking to buy, uh, to have a, a, it got to a point in his career where he could have a car. And he was really fretting and almost apologetic about the level of car that he could have. Oh, right, okay. Because yeah. he didn't want it to appear that he was being... Boastful. Boastful, yeah. 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 But actually, he was earning at such a level where, you know, nothing wrong with it. having that. Yeah, yeah, you can have that car if you want. So it's it's quite complicated. But as you say, it's not a mental illness. It's not a condition. Um yeah, and I'm just referring back to the one where he says use it to your benefit. Um, and he did mention that without imposter syndrome or without a certain sense of questioning yourself, there is a, a chance that you'll assume that you're you're better than you actually are. So I think it's about finding the right balance, isn't it? Both of the talks I listened to said the main way to deal with it is to talk about it is to be open. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Mike Cannon-Brooks, he, he talks about the fact that um, most successful people that he knows um, heavily question and regularly question their ideas and their knowledge. So he's saying they don't necessarily question or, or doubt themselves, but they do question their thought process, their ideas and everything. So they're not afraid to ask for advice yeah. So it's sort of finding that balance, isn't it? And going, okay, I, I maybe don't know everything that I need to know there, but then, or maybe you hire the right people to do that for you as well. But that comes with maturity as well, doesn't yeah. it? I think, or well, hopefully it comes with maturity, where you do recognise that you can't be good at everything. Yeah. And that you you start then to drill down into the things that you are good at. Yeah. Um, and that, I find that, that helped. Yeah. Once I once I got to the point where it's like, okay, I know I know what I can do, and I know what I need to steer well clear of. Yeah. It it makes it easier to feel that you're in the right place, in the right zone. And he says in the talk that it's okay to be out of your depth sometimes, and that's true, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe your job would become boring if you felt it was completely within your capabilities all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we always, if we were never out of our depth, we'd still be crawling around, wouldn't we, dribbling? Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> like all of the time, I mean, not just <laughs> on a Saturday night. <laughs> but I, I do, I think one of the things I might, um, you know, when you have those things, you say, what would you say to your younger self? Yeah. I would perhaps bring up imposter syndrome to, to my younger self. So I'm, I'm thinking about when I was... Um, in my early 20s, uh, you know, in, in, in some roles where clearly some of my colleagues had no sense of imposter syndrome at all. And so although I was now looking back, very capable and probably did all the extra work because I felt that I wasn't worthy. And, and maybe some of these colleagues perhaps didn't do the extra work because they felt that you know, they were already good enough. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for whatever reason, or that they felt that they needed to make you think that they were 
you know, so they would assert themselves over you. It's a sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Well, I'm going to show this youngster and because they might find me out. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> they could well have had imposter syndrome, but have been hiding it quite yeah. well. Yeah, so. yeah. But that may be, you know, having heard both talks and it really resonated with me about actually bringing it out into the open and knowing that it is a thing that lots of people have. Having yeah. known that at the beginning of my career, that would have just been a bit more comforting. But yeah, I mean, you do get people. You know, sometimes if you're having a conversation along these lines, people go, oh, "I've been winging it for years," and you haven't been winging it for years. You've been learning for years yeah. and getting better. So sometimes we do need to acknowledge that that skill. Yes, used to be pants at that now much better at it yeah and there is that whole approach isn't there kind of entrepreneurial approach of say yes and then find out how to, to do, do it. it yeah see you do have to wing that don't you yeah. so if, if you've got that sort of approach to life but equally so if you think that you've got to be a master of something before you can say yes to it that's going to hold you back a yeah. bit isn't it absolutely a lot well, and, and you, yeah and you won't you won't become a master of it because you, you, um, you need to be doing it and learning by your mistakes and all of those types of things yeah i've just learned by my mistake there i've just swallowed my coffee down the wrong way sorry that heads oh. my uh, pained expression <laughs> and the, uh, I, I thought yeah. that you were looking at me as if to say what are you talking about that's actually your imposter syndrome coming out now <laughs> no sorry i just uh, I, I forgot how to swallow coffee <laughs> Yeah, so imposter syndrome. Those two TED Talks that I referenced, one's by Mike Cannon-Brooks. It's had 3.3 million views so far. That's from 2017. And the other one is a TED-Ed talk, and it's uh, what is imposter syndrome and how can you combat it? It's more of an educational one. And that's had 3.8 million views since uh, 2018 uh, by Elizabeth Cox and Sharon Coleman. Now, um, your your computer chirps away normally during this, doesn't it? I have just muted it and then unmuted it. So, I've muted it again. <laughs> and that's because Heather's uh, Slack app uh, keeps chirping at her because uh, <laughs> colleagues um, keep messaging you out of office hours, don't they, in Slack? Well, yeah, they're not only messaging me. They're messaging... Because Slack, if you're not familiar with it, is a sort of self-contained messaging app that you can use within an organisation. You can set up different channels. Uh, you can you can share files there. Um, and so, yeah, they're not always necessarily messaging me, but they might be posting something in a thread. Yeah. We, the charity that I'm involved with, we, find, we have found it during COVID particularly useful, uh, a means of keeping in touch. Yeah without in without there being emails flying around you know just for certain things um sharing information you know this is happening it's a hub for something doesn't totally, it yeah. yeah yeah so you know the charity um has quite a lot of inf- has been doing quite a lot of work in the community and so if somebody finds something out so the thing at the moment is um the um the afghan uh, refugees who are come into Shropshire and there's been appeals out for donations of things Um, and now they've sort of put the blocks on that because they've got so much stuff but we're able to share information so that if somebody contacts the charity 
we're as up to date as we can be because we share information through that that platform. Have you used Slack or do you? Use no, I'm not else? not familiar with Slack at all. But it sounds very much like uh, Teams, which we use. So we uh-huh. use Microsoft Teams, and uh, we said we we're going to talk about Slack and Workplace, but I don't think we can talk about Slack and Workplace without talking about Teams mm, now mm. either. So. Um, Teams we, we use in the workplace for those sorts of things. Um, so you've got all the different channels. I work for a global company, so the, there is a risk that you have way too many channels and you can't find your way around them. So we, we tend to have the channels that are very specifically related to um, a particular site or a division or uh, an area of interest. So say, for example, if you're um, IT support, there's a channel there for you. But it is, it is great for messaging. So we used to use uh, Skype for calls. Now we, we use Teams uh, and instant messaging, instant chats is what we use to, you know, to communicate if you're, if you're reluctant to actually speak to somebody out loud or video message them. And uh, yeah, for me as well, having that central hub where you can all be collaborating on a document in in Teams, that's really useful. But what we've, we've got is a bit of a strange hybrid as well because we use Workplace. Now, I hadn't realised that Workplace had sort of um, Facebook... um, own workplace and they they've pitched themselves alongside slack and teams and now we don't use it at all like that workplace to us is a bit more like um shop window it's not the granular level of detail well we certainly don't use it like that on our site and it's more like the the pr for our particular plant so if we're wanting to post some nice pictures or something good that's happening on the plant we'll post it on our workplace page. And that's shared globally. That's shared globally. So you show off on... We show off on workplace, yeah. yeah. And then the... Do the the nitty-gritty of of teams. How the hell are we going to do all of this behind the scenes? Yeah, So and we don't use workplace for instant messaging and, and sharing of files or anything like that. So they're two quite separate. Yeah, so I see... The, the stuff we do in um, Teams and SharePoint as well. That's the the work. Workplaces where we show nice pictures. Right. Um, and also, really interesting, because it's based on um, Facebook, it's got that nice, comfortable feel, so you've got the news feed coming through. And really, since using that, I've got a better sense of being part of a global company because there's one particular channel um, which is just for people to post about what they're doing in their day. And because if, if you're working in 40 different countries around the world, somebody's day is not the same as another no, person's no. day. So it's really fascinating to see the different types of work and the, the different cultures. Uh, you know, and I've found that, is, for me, is one of the most positives of it. But it, it's not quite what I read um, how Facebook pitch it. Okay. So I, I would I wouldn't have placed it at Slack and Teams. I'd be really interested to know somebody who uses Workplace in a similar way to Slack and Teams, but we haven't delved into that at all. Because Teams integrates with Outlook, doesn't it? Yeah. So all the Microsoft products. Yeah. yeah integrate. So that's nicely. much more. With Slack, you can you could put a PDF within Slack. But, you know, it, it doesn't integrate with your... Yeah, so your when you have a Teams your... channel, it automatically links into SharePoint and everything as well. So you've got the, the beauty of that. I think they've done a lot of work on Teams, and I'm not not sure it's completely there, but it's, you know, in, in the last 
um, 18 months, certainly two years, it's come a long way. And like you say, during the, the pandemic, it's been really valuable just to have that connection. Well, and I think that will continue because, as we've mentioned countless times over the last 18 months or so, uh, once you've got people working um, from home, it's really difficult to find a common place where everybody is yeah. at the same time, but you can all be in the virtual world at the same time. You know, whether you're in the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or in the office Tuesday, Thursday, or yeah. any combination thereof. I'll give you an example. We're just uh, updating our, our business continuity plan, and actually, post-pandemic, uh, sorry, post-pre-pandemic, the majority of a business continuity effort would have been involved, like, say, a war room. It's that sort of idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not yeah. That specifically not quite war. like that. Yeah. But, yeah, we, you gather in, in one place, typically. Yeah. That's the idea. And you'd see face-to-face and then you'd organise everything. But actually thinking about it in the post-pandemic world, you might not be able to do that. And it really brought it home to us. So how do we create that sense of a... Of a a room, a conference room where you've all got together face to face um, in the virtual world. And so what we've written into the business continuity plan is the first thing you do is the person responsible creates um, a new channel in Teams and that is the hub. That's where the documents get stored. That's where the communication about that particular crisis happens. So no emails back and forth. You know, try and limit the phone calls because yeah. you can record it all in Teams. And that's the big difference with, you know, Zoom, which has been used an awful lot. But but there are limits. Zoom is very much, it's it's a call, isn't it? And once it's yeah. finished, it's finished. You know, the idea of storing stuff there. You can share yeah. stuff, but yeah. it's, it's I, I might share my screen but feels ephemeral that's a good word isn't that it? that is a good word it's yeah ephemeral. what's it mean <laughs> exactly what you've just said <laughs> <laughs> but it, so it, it's it's slightly different isn't it whereas teams can be more project based yeah. and i think that that i don't like teams but some of my clients use teams so if i'm invited to a meeting and the thing i don't like is that unless it's just a setting on my laptop, I don't know, where you can't see everybody's face. You can only see the face of the person who's speaking. Yeah, no, that's a setting. Because <laughs> <laughs> all I can see are their initials. Or so maybe, I don't know what... I... Maybe they haven't got their camera switched on. Well, then, in that case, it's rude. Yeah, that's very rude, isn't it? I like to see people's faces now, and that's something that uh, I think has come from uh, being in lockdown. I need to see another yes, person's yeah, face. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, I like to see people's faces. The imposter syndrome element of my psyche likes to see that people are actually smiling, smiling or, you know, listening to, if I'm saying something because my mind is thinking they're clearly not even sat at their desk. They've gone for a run because Heather's doing a 10-minute presentation about something. So, yeah. Well, I'd, one thing I would say, though, is that in order for teams to work, I think the whole of your team has to buy into it. Mm. So t- take that example of, you know, you've decided that your incident management is, is based on teams. All it takes is for the person who's chairing that meeting to just start doing it a different way or people contributing to it a different way and start sending emails and the whole um, centrality of it breaks down. 
Yeah. And it, be, and it then it just becomes a chore. So then somebody has to go and put the things into teams. So it, it's sort of something you have to culturally embed, I think. Yeah. A, a classic example of that is with Slack, um, with the charity that, that, um, that I work with. There are people... So we have a particular channel, which is where we keep latest information you know we have a weekly meeting and everything's you know so and so's on holiday this has happened we've got this funding we haven't got that funding somebody started blah 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 and then people say well i didn't know about that you say well it's on slack well i don't go on i don't go on to slack well you need to go on to slack yeah, yeah because we're not doing it on slack and emailing it around everybody just because you are unable to just log into slack i just have it running in the background that's yeah. why it pings and if there's something... Yeah, that's what I do. I just Teams is always open. Because yeah. It shows your availability. Like you say, it connects with the calendar so you can see if you're not in the office as well. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 So, so we're, we're fans in our own way of our own tools. Um, I, I think uh, the Microsoft... It surprises me. I've, I've always been an Apple fan, by the way. Oh. So I'm a bit, a bit late to the Microsoft party, but now I'm working for a company where it's all, all the Microsoft products are heavily used and I'm, I'm actually coming round to that way of thinking a little bit. Fair play, fair play. Well, our profile this week is, I think I suggested this gentleman. You did? Yeah. Was it because you were interested in the product? I think Do you, do so. you desire one of his products? No, uh, well... I don't know that I do because I don't think I could carry it around, but uh, I've got a friend who's got one, um, and they um, he now is doing an electric version. We're talking about Andrew Ritchie, who is the founder and... Um, what Technical director. Technical director now of Brompton Bicycles. These are the folding bikes that um, famously people would put in the boot of their car, drive to the station take their bike on the train into London, cycle around London to finish their commute, then fold the bike up and put it by their desk. Yeah. And then do it all in reverse in the evening. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's as much need for a folding bike if you live in a rural area, is there? And I suppose unless you want him to take your bike somewhere and you haven't got a bike rack. But certainly in, in um, an urban setting, I can really see the appeal of a bike. You can just pop under your desk. Yeah, However, I think that, you know, there, not everybody has that much storage. Not everybody has a garage. Not everybody has somewhere to True, store, yeah. you know, or a big shed to store a full-size bike. Um, so I think there's that. Or a hallway. With, with or a hallway yeah, with yeah. bikes and prams in it and all yeah, that sort of thing point. if you're in a flat. Good point, Heather. However, um, they're quite expensive, but they are a sort of cult thing. So the friend of ours who's got one... Um, he probably doesn't need to have a folding bike, although he does like to take it on the train. Because it, it does then mean that he doesn't need a car. Because he, he can cycle to the station, whereas yeah. most of us would drive to the station, leave our car at the station, go off to Cardiff for a meeting or whatever it might be. But but they're quite they're quite a thing. Yeah, so there seem to be a whole community of um, Brompton of fans yes. real fans and, and yeah. they're quite vocal as well aren't yeah. they yeah. Yeah. yeah but but we said we talk about Andrew Ritchie yeah. so Andrew Ritchie um, born the same year as my dad actually 1947 he's the inventor 
and um, he's guided the company all the way up to the point where it really started expansion and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later but he's an engineer he's he's yeah. uh, he's yeah. from what i can see he's your, what you would really expect from an engineer yeah well he, yeah uh, i was watching um a, a, a talk that he'd given at a, at a conference and he he looks he looks a bit like a boffin and <laughs> i don't mean that in a he, he looks like a man who well, he basically hadn't reinvented the wheel, but he had <laughs> he'd reinvented the bicycle and had totally changed. The arrangement of the wheel, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, that's why it's been a success. It's because he's, he's taken a, a problem um, that didn't necessarily, nobody necessarily thought needed solving and he solved it. Yeah. And, it, and it's been a huge success. It also feels ahead of its time as well, doesn't it, really? Well, yeah, I think yeah. it was. I think it was. But it, it wasn't easy. I mean, he he took him years to get enough money to actually start making these bikes seriously. Um, and I think I've I've heard it referred to in an article where somebody was asking, you know, is it the next unicorn? And uh, the current CEO says it's a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> Slow and steady, yeah, slow and steady. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it started off by um, persuading ten friends to each invest a hundred pounds so we could build a prototype. And then when nobody was interested in that prototype, he had to raise some more money um, to um, to actually build some. So he took an advance on thirty bikes, two hundred pound each, paid in advance, uh, and he actually. Um, Built 50 rather than 30. Okay. But he sold them all. <laughs> After 18 months, um, the bikes were delivered and he sold all 50. And then he raised £8,000, made 500 bikes over two years. And then, this is where it starts to, to actually become serious big money now. He got private funding from a, another businessman, Julian Verica. Um, he'd bought. He was a fan of a Brompton bike. He'd bought two Bromptons uh, to go on his yacht. Exactly. See, just what that's you were saying. You want a yeah, yeah. You don't want a crowdy yacht with no. proper bikes, do no. you? Um, and then he raised an extra ten thousand pound from friends and relatives and other owners, and then he got. Um, an extra £100,000. So it took him all together. I think I read an article, it took five years to get enough capital to actually start making uh, in a factory. Um, and, and then the rest is history, really. He's, uh, he's recruited a new management team in the early um, 2000s. And then this, this new CEO, new managing director, um, also bought into the company as well. So bought some of the shareholding of Ritchie. And from the articles I read, it doesn't sound like their relationship was without bumps. But the company doesn't seem to have suffered from any of that. Um, I think Andrew Ritchie having the foresight to recognise that he needed somebody else to grow the business beyond where it was. You know, fair play to the, the man. That can't have been an easy decision. It was his baby. He's grown it. Mm -hmm. He's nurtured it. He, he did all the difficult stuff of getting the initial funding. It's proved itself now, but somebody's going to take it to be a multi-million billion yeah. dollar company. I think, that's, I think that's about knowing your limitations and 
you know, and I think going back to the imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome thing, it's about knowing, well, this is the bit that I can do. And I believe in myself in doing that, um, not blindly. Yeah. Um, but I do recognise that I need some help. And yeah. that, and I think that's, that's huge. I, I was reading an article in Money Week, which goes back, it does go back a wee while to 2009, I think. Um, and basically, they were, this is going back in time. So he studied engineering at Cambridge. Um, and, uh, and he says, he, he's, he's got a very dry sense of humour. He looks very quite serious, but actually he's quite witty. Um, and he said, um, theor- uh, engineering from Cambridge, just theoretical stuff. No preparation for the metal bashing I'd later have to do. <laughs> uh, he sold pot plants door to door for a while until in 1975, his father met a guy called Bill Ingram, who was an Australian. And he was trying to raise money for the first genuine folding bike, the Bickerton. Never heard of it, yeah. And... and um, uh, just goes to show it's not the idea that matters, is it? It's what it's you do with it. It's the execution, yeah. yeah. Um, and his dad said, um, oh, my son loves gadgets. Come, come down and see him. So this guy dragged this bike um, to Kensington. He said it was light and compact, but also rather flimsy and awkward. Um, so, yes, it's not the original thought, but he became hooked on how to improve it. And, and as you say, that's the thing that um, that got him into raising money from his friends um to what the old is the equivalent of crowdfunding now isn't it yeah, it is really but you just ask your mates to stick their hands in their pockets yeah and hope it goes okay i read a lovely article in cyclist.co.uk so that um enthusiasts of the cycle one can imagine mm-hmm. uh, i saw um this particular sentence i loved it said james dyson might have made your vacuum cleaner suck a bit harder but Andrew Ritchie is the UK's greatest designer. Brilliant. And in fact, you've just reminded me that there was something a few years ago on the TV, Great British Designs, and it was like the London tube map, um, you know, various things. And I think the Brompton was 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 on that list of you know great British yeah. manufacturing, great British engineering. Um yeah, so so we sort of touched on the fact that um, the the new CEO um, Will Butler Adams uh, had a bit of a rocky separation. Um, sorry, um, Andrew Ritchie had a rocky separation initially uh, because he didn't like the way that the company was going. Apparently, they met in two thousand and one, um, and by two thousand and six, Butler Adams was running the business side of Bromptons. Mm-hmm. And he's got some really um, nice things to say about, about Andrew Ritchie. He said Andrew is a genius, and the reason he's a genius and we have this bike is because he's obsessed with detail. He says it's a beautiful mind stuff, and there's thousands of drawings he's done of every spring and every screw. But he said um, Ritchie's desire to remain on top of every detail made the Brompton a profoundly great bike. But he said it threatened to stifle the company's expansion. And um, he said that perhaps he lacks the buccaneering personality that you need to manage a growing business. And and although at the time it it was talked about in the press, I've been looking at articles, I don't know if you saw them, where they're suggesting a massive fallout. Ultimately, he's, he's come back as a technical director and comes in for regular meetings and joins the design team. Um, 
Butler Adams uh, did say in, in this article, he said uh, he typically tears their work to shreds. So it's like, okay, okay. so still the attention yeah. to detail can't yeah. quite let go. But it, it sounds like, you know, he he recognised that that was his weakness and now this um, this company is going from strength to strength under the uh, watchful eye of Will Butler-Adams, who are warm to in this article. Maybe we need to profile him at some point. Maybe he's the next one. But, but I think what's really interesting there, and you touched on this earlier, is that this was um, Rich's baby. This was something that he had grown you know from a small seed and had made happen and had put his reputation on the line and called him favors and all sorts of things and I think that it must be really really difficult but to take a step yeah, back especially when in the context of this um quote I read from the Guardian back in 2005 it said he's remained sin- single he hasn't had a family this is my family meaning the Brompton bike and the company and you know, he's he's seen himself as an unmarriable chap and obsessed with this project. So he's not going to, just because he's the technical director now, he's not going to over It's literally things. his it's baby. It's part of, yeah, yeah it is literally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so really but, interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And um, I, when I go to Cheltenham um, to get my hair cut, we walk past a bike shop and we always have a little look at the Bromptons and the electric Bromptons, um, and they're you know thousands of pounds, uh, but we never go in and buy one. Yeah, that the you're talking about the cult of the Brompton. There, there is a a, a group of Brompton fans that aren't keen on this development with the electric bike. Oh. The purists, yeah, it would appear so. Yeah, so if you, if you read a few of the articles, there's a bit of a faction. <laughs> do they get together and do a London cycle ride or something? There's some. I didn't delve into all the activities, but something. if you look at the Brompton website, there's an awful lot of the pages dedicated to the fans and the owners of of the bicycles, which is a good thing, isn't it? You know, you want to keep your your fans that are, yeah. you know they're amazing to have for a company. Um, especially an ambitious company. That said, over 80% of um, the Bromptons produced in the UK every year are exported now. I wonder where they go to. Korea, Japan and Hong Kong. Oh. Uh, in this article I read in Forbes, this this is probably the most recent article I found on the Brompton. Um, so this is from 2019. It says that um, these are cities that are known for small homes, and an affinity for British brands. But I would also add to that is that they commute on trains, yeah. you know, and it's a lot of urban areas. Um, so they've got a loyal army all over the world. Mm. But, yeah, 80% of the annual manufacturing is, is exported. And it's, you know... Unfortunately, you know, it is unusual for us to be exporting manufactured stuff, you know, it's yeah. increasingly reducing. So fair play, I think that's I wonder how many don't know how many people they employ. I didn't didn't come across that, but uh, yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, the article in Cyclist was uh, actually um the interview was done at their factory um and it did show some interactions um, with the new CEO and, and the staff. So they might have mentioned, I didn't get a note of how many mm-hmm. staff they've got there, but it sounds like a really nice place to work mm-hmm. as well. Um, and if you look at the website, they've got profiles 
of the the different um, people in the different roles and also quite a comprehensive list of vacancies as well you know sort of details of those roles so if you're based in London and you fancy getting involved in Bromptons take a look um, but yeah the article in cyclist.co.uk is called welcome to the fold behind the scenes at Brompton if you're a real enthusiast it's really nice to just get a peek behind the scenes at their factory and we might have to refer to it if we then decide to profile the current CEO, Will Butler Adams, at some point. But we'll give it a few weeks at least, shall we? We're all done, aren't we, Heather? Mm. Um, I'm not going to cycle away. No. Well, we're upstairs, so that you know, if there was, I'd have to lug my bike up the stairs if I cycled here from home. I never thought about that. Is what do you do if you want to put it on the bike rack? <laughs> do you fold it up and then chain know. it to a bike rack? I think or, the idea is you, that you, you don't, don't put it on a bike rack. The idea is that you take it. Yeah. Do you remember? Um, well, I think that locally there was some guy who would, um, instead of you getting a cab home, he would cycle to wherever you were, where your car is, and he'd put his bike in the boot of your car and drive you home with your car. And then he'd cycle on to his next... What a cool idea. I like that. I mean, probably somewhere like Oswald Street, not ideal, because you could end up having to cycle up the top of the race course to get somebody. (laughs) But in a city, I would imagine that would be quite a a dinky thing to do. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Folding bikes have many uses. Okay, so that's all we've got time for on Big Business Briefs this week. We still haven't recorded a new outro here, so we'll just have to say goodbye in the usual way. You could always sing something. No. <laughs> <laughs>